0: This is The Dog and Bone.
1: Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the specialist agency that builds profile and helps grow business for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite business leaders with something to say into our kennel for a chat, and we ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. In this episode of The Dog and Bone, I'm joined by Keith Moore, Chief Marketing Officer at Santander, UK and soon to be CMO at National Lottery Operator Camelot. Also with me is Lauren Reynolds, Senior Global Brand Manager for ITV Studios. Lauren's first marketing job was at Telco Orange in 2011 and she was there a bit later when it became EE and she moved to ITV in 2016. She now builds the brand reputation of TV juggernauts like Dancing on Ice and Love Island across multiple international territories. And she's got some questions for Keith today. Keith has been in the marketing game for a little bit longer than Lauren. He joined Santander in 1995 when it was Abbey National. In 2013, he became the first Chief Marketing Officer at Santander UK. And in 2015, he brought the Santander Cycle Scheme to the streets of London and Milton Keynes. He's worked with celebrities such as Rory McIlroy, Jessica Ennis, and Jensen Button, and his latest campaign for Santander sees high-profile TV hosts Anton Deck take a light-hearted swipe at competitor banks as they launch their own Bank of Anton Deck. So, Keith, I mentioned the uh, Anton Deck ads there. So, how's that going? It's been quite a high-profile campaign.
2: Yeah, it's it's been very high-profile, which is exactly what we were looking for. It's quite often hard for a bank to achieve cut-through. And I think the primary objective of the marketing in this context was to ensure we were being talked about. It's fair to say it's been a bit polarising, and I don't worry about that.
1: I'm sure Lauren's got a few questions for you on that. So, Lauren, what would you like to ask Keith?
0: Um, I think the first thing I'd ask is... uh... When thinking of a bank, you often think of uh, trust at the foremost of of anything, especially when they're uh, dealing with the day- to day finances of your personal money. So how do you strike the balance between you know being witty enough within your campaigns to get that cut through but equally being trustworthy enough as a bank?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good area to explore actually. I think if you look very closely at what marketing can really deliver, we have to be honest with ourselves and say. Trust isn't something that's driven massively by particularly advertising and communications, or a campaign of this type of na- or nature. We've we've found, and I'm sure the sectors, and certainly other banks will find. But I'm pretty sure the sectors probably you found this experience in your time in the telecom sector. It's customer experience that really drives trust, and so the two are not combined, and so trust for us driven solely by experience, and it's getting the fame that's the crucial bit and getting the the brand recognition out there.
1: So, Keith, you're saying that you you don't look to advertising to build up trust in any way. That's probably setting your hat against quite a few other people in your position.
2: That might be the case, actually. Um, I go by what I understand from the data I see, by talking to our customers, talking to people in the market, in financial services. I guess it'll be different in different sectors. Certainly in the sector I'm in, the experience we have is that trust is driven by the day-to-day interactions a consumer has with the organisation.
0: But does that make it ever more important to um, communicate something more effectively rather than just being a a mockumentary, for example, with Anton Deck?
2: I mean, I could argue that we've communicated our brand really effectively with this campaign because it's been talked about massively. However, we've chosen not to communicate a deeply serious message and that's an important part of what we wanted to do because banking and finance generally is a dry subject It's a low-interest category, and you have to stimulate interest in it. And being a bit po-faced in the way you communicate, frankly, disengages people. And if you look at our, uh, you know, the venerable people in the industry who have written long uh, missives about this kind of thing and are are pretty learned, they talk about entertaining as being a key element of driving engagement in advertising. And so we wanted to drive entertainment and get people engaging through that. That was the first motive behind why we went down this route.
0: And is that an easy selling with the rest of Santander and the other board members?
2: I'm not going to lie. I I didn't find it particularly difficult because I've been there a long time and people trust me because I've got a track record of success. If I was a brand new CMO in a new business and nobody had seen a track record of delivery in that business, I think it would have been a lot harder. So I have an incredibly trusting relationship with the CEO, who's my boss. He trusts me. He knows... You know, you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. And um, th- that's the case in point here. The idea was simple and, and, you know, he got it straight away. In fact, when I sold it to him, all I said to him was, imagine a logo, Santander Flame, and the the word Santander, like you see it on the, over the top of a branch, take the S away and turn the R around a little bit at the end, and it's out on the deck. And he, he visually got it and went, OK, go with it. That was it.
1: Can I ask, is there any barrier to entry in terms of the cost of dealing with celebrities? Because when you're doing an idea like that, you can only deal with Ant and Dec. So um, I assume their agent has a field day.
2: We've got a lot of experience of doing that because we've had, down the years, people like Lewis Hamilton, Rory McIlroy, Jensen Button, Jessica Ennis. They all cost different amounts of money and it all, it's all a question of timing. The cost of Ant and Dec wasn't a, um, a factor in being able to do this activity. Their agent was very good to deal with, actually. I'm not just saying that because we're partners with them, but they were very realistic. And fortunately, we went in with a a sum in mind, and it was the same sum that they'd had in mind. So actually, it was a reasonably short process, thankfully, because we only had about two weeks to close it out from the original idea.
0: It's probably because they don't need all the money because ITV pay them enough.
2: <laughs> well, you would, you would know <laughs> better than I. You would know that one. <laughs>
1: Obviously, Ant was in the news for a uh, drink-driving incident. Does that play on your mind?
2: Yeah, one of the factors we looked at when we were when the initial idea came up was what is the level of risk engaging with an ambassador or a talent that has got some track record of issues? And we have to do things actually like risk assessments, so there are formal procedures we have to undertake in the bank. But I think what's more important is recognising that A lot of people have individual issues that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. They're a lot more common than people think, issues with mental health and and mental well-being. This is just a manifestation of that kind of issue. The individual in question is dealing with that, has taken treatment and is continuing to deal with that. And so it would seem to me a little short-sighted to rule out working with somebody on that basis because it's not just people like celebrities like Ant who who have to deal with that kind of issue. It's a lot of people in every walk of life. I'm sure we all know individuals who've got issues they have to deal with every day. So I think it's important not to turn your back on people.
0: So looking at wider campaigns, you mentioned you've worked with Lewis Hamilton and the likes of many other celebrities. But are are there any standout campaigns for you um, within your career history at Santander that you're really proud of and it doesn't necessarily have to be with a celebrity?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got one that I've been on record talking about before, which I'm really proud of, which is when we launched Santander in the UK in January 2010. We was working with Lewis, but he was only he was only in the ad for a, I don't know, ten seconds of a sixty second ad. It was just a really good ad. It was signifying a big change for me in my career. It, not many people get a chance to launch a, a whole new brand onto the high street, especially at the scale we did. And the ad itself was great. It was written by um, Joe and Simon at Engine. Yeah, everything just worked perfectly with it, loved it, and it worked really well as well. So it, had, it sort of all came together.
0: And are there any campaigns that you're less so excited about and why?
2: Oh, there's loads. There's loads of campaigns we've had down the years. I think the, the idea of how proud or not somebody is of a campaign is an interesting one. I'm never not proud of something I've done, but some of the stuff I've done has been a lot more functional. Let's say it served a purpose of a time. It was done on a shoestring budget. It had to be done really quickly. It had to be done for a specific reason that's not very interesting. So yeah, there's there's plenty and there's some. We did we did something in a branch once and it was a poster which involved a photograph of a frozen chicken in our branches, which the staff absolutely hated. This was back in Abbey National days prior to Santander, and it was oh, it, when you lose the people in the retail network, your colleagues in the branches or on the call centres, your campaign's dead. From the Why moment didn't it they starts. like
1: frozen chicken?
2: I think actually it was just really weird-looking image. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes you have an image and you put it on you think it, you understand what it is, but in the rarefied environment of an agency, uh, you know, boardroom or a studio, and you look at something and it looks great, when you see it in situ on Kilburn High Road in the branch window, less well produced than you like, with the sun glaring on it, not quite as clear as you'd like, you go, mm, I can see why they might have an issue now. So everybody's got plenty of those, you know. It taught me to keep things simple
0: so you mentioned then that you uh worked with engine are they your external agent creative agency
2: yeah we've worked with engine for over ten years now actually from previous guises, that they were previously less engine group it was w c r s actually who was the agency we first engaged with they were part of a group that became known as engine and is now actually engine fully because w c r s is recently disappeared.
0: And and how do you strike the balance between um, working with great external agencies as well as your internal resource?
2: Well I think there's there has to be an equation around how much money somebody has and as a marketer one of the things that a criticism that's often levelled at marketers which is not unfair in some cases is that we can be a little frivolous or a little less cost focused than, than other colleagues that we have in our organisation. I don't like that criticism and so I ensure that In Santander, I um, make sure we are cost-conscious. Any sector you're in, cost-consciousness is important, and it's important for credibility because that's how you get the licence to do things like Bank of Ant and Dec. And when you look at that, some jobs that you need doing in a business, like a retail business like Santander, which I guess is the same in the telecoms business and and many other sectors, some of the stuff you need doesn't need an ECD or a creative director you want to do a price change or a tariff change poster or a leaflet or a notification email or you know some sms messaging about something particular uh, issue you don't need an external agency to do that so in-house creative agencies i think are a a good choice for clients especially those that have got lots of throughput
1: they're a lot cheaper lauren you've had some experience in that area as well haven't you
0: uh, yes, when I first kind of started um, my career in the earlier days and my, it was my job to raise POs and um, various different creative agencies, I, I questioned the expense of them um, and then that soon rolled out to us uh, creating our own in-house Video agency, probably for the same reasons that um, Keith is referencing there. So, definitely creates consistency and saves money, but an interesting discussion point in terms of how you harness creativity both with internal companies and then also still using those great external creative agencies that we all know and love.
1: Where was that that you were? And um, that was at EE. Right. So, in your experience, do you think agencies are trying to charge too much to produce <laughs> videos?
0: Uh, you know it, it depends what the project is if it's a smaller project that's very much taking for example an advert and then cutting that and slicing it and dicing it for for various different platforms then it's probably easier to go internally um but if you're working on a larger campaign idea where they may have um the resource already in place then i think it can also work and um, to use external agencies i think um, nowadays more than ever it's about striking the right balance between creativity and and also what your budget is
1: i'd like to get Keith's thoughts on that a bit more because you've obviously worked with several high-profile agencies and you also have your own in-house resources where do you what do you see as value that's worth paying externally for is that something is that a gut feel or is it something the data shows or is it um, just by track record of the people you're dealing with how do you draw the line between paying for extra and, and and not I think it's partly experience
2: you're right there's a bit of time served in there and understanding I mean I've I've paid too much for things in the past in my younger days. And I think I came to realize, actually, it was more about what did I want from an agency, not what I didn't want from an agency. And what I want from an agency are great ideas. I want all the money I'm spending to be put into the the development of ideas and the implementation of great ideas, not the management of the client. And I think that's where the balance has to shift. I don't mind paying the agencies all the money they want for the brains that are behind creativity and great ideas, because they're things that I can't necessarily replicate internally. Sometimes the, the ideas do come internally, but I think it's important not for me to not use 60, 70, 80 percent of my budget on process management. Right.
1: Are That's... you involved in the creative idea generation, or you just leave that up to the agency?
2: I think, well, in my case, yes. Uh, um, not, and this is not Santander thing. I think the ownership of a creative idea has to be a partnership between all the people involved. In, in, in the development process. So, in my case, it would be the creative agency, which is Engine, the media agency, which is Densu our activation agency on the sponsorship side, a company called Sidu and Simon. Um, it could be some of our smaller uh, agencies. We have a video production agency called Vidzy where they're involved as well. We have um, a web agency, Milton Bayer, they're involved. And then there's all of the marketing team, representatives from different elements, social communications, planning, brand. And I think it's down to, I guess, the root of my, my belief in this is that it's about creating an environment in a brief or a briefing session that releases that creativity, that creates the spark, that gets people having ideas. And then wherever the ideas come from, doesn't really matter. And, you know, more often than not, they've come from the ad agency because they've got really, really good people in there. But it doesn't matter. Nobody's got ownership of ideas. It's then down to then the individual interested parties to execute them in the areas they' are specialists in
0: so I guess um Keith being the big boss at, at this table with uh, multiple agencies and and creative ideas around you how do you harness those and continue to push one's consistent idea without um, letting it kind of stray away
2: when the process works best which isn't always so I'm not going to say I'm not gonna lie and say this works all the time we get buy-in because everybody's involved and then everybody gets a chance to vote we choose the idea that wins and then everybody gets behind it because ultimately everybody has to make a decision and sometimes people take things to research i'm not a great believer in massive amounts of creative research because it can be misleading by the way that's not a well accepted piece of wisdom but it's just a view i have and i think then people will align behind it however there are situations where people that doesn't work the process doesn't allow it sometimes as a client and as the senior client you have to make the decision because you get paid for that Um, and you have to take responsibility i think it's a poor client who blames the agency for work that's gone wrong if there's technical reasons why it's gone wrong in the implementation of the idea that's directly attributable to faults and errors in the process fair enough but generally speaking bad briefs equate to bad output and a bad client is somebody who blames an agency when they've made a decision that's wrong
1: have you ever had to pull anything at the last minute because you suddenly realised it wasn't going to work for the brand?
2: No, I haven't, but I have had to pull £20 million worth of advertising and the launch of a whole new brand a week before it was due to launch. Why? So, back in the early days of my career in Abbey National, I worked for the General Insurance Division. I was brought in to work on a project to build a new direct insurance brand, working with Zenith, as it was at the time. We, um, we made some ads, great ads, we built a big media strategy. I worked with a, a guy who uh, worked at the Zenith at the time. It was Andy Tilly, but also the account guy was Steve Hyde, who's gone on to bigger and better things in his time now. And we booked all the advertising, and actually the hard bits to get out of it were things like yellow pages. You commit back in the day when there was directories, you know, printed yellow page directories. If you're saying but,
1: you did tablets of stone next.
2: Yeah, well, no, I mean, this this was the late 90s. You know, <laughs> this was kind of, I wouldn't say quite say pre-internet, but not far off it. We booked it all, and then the board um, decided they weren't going to launch the business. And so we had to can the ads, so they're on the shelf. In fact, they're on a DVD in my library at work. Nobody else has ever seen them. And we had to write off most of the media because it was sunk TV, print, directories, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was... uh, It was excruciating.
0: I think it'd be rude of me not to sit in front of the CMO of Santander and and not ask how the new rise of digital banks is kind of affecting your overall brand. How do you stand up to the rise of Monzo and Starling and all these new kind of app-based banks?
2: Well, there's the fundamental reason why these businesses, these brands have been a success, and that's because they're meeting a need that wasn't being fulfilled by the big players. And you could argue that that's because the the bigger players had become, let's say, encumbered by the market. So they'd behaved like an incumbent and hadn't seen some of the more micro-opportunities that existed for these entrants to, t- to take a small step into and then grow from there. You could argue that's being a bit lazy or being a bit blasé or arrogant. Whatever it is, there's a need there that's been fulfilled that the other banks, Santander included, could have could have taken advantage of. What I see that it's done for the sector is a good thing. I'm not being trite. They've raised the game on what needs to be delivered for customers and are raising the game. And they, they've increased the pace in my business, I'm sure in the other big banks as well. And so we've seen improvements in our NPS scores, our customer satisfaction scores as a result of the work we've been doing recently. And that's because we've been feeling the need to up the game. And that's what new entrants can do in a sector. I think it's a good thing. But, you know, Monzo are signing up 250,000 customers a a month. So they're also taking share. So that's a bad thing. So competition's good generally for the customer, I think, is is the short answer. Not necessarily massively brilliant for for the big banks.
0: And um, part of Monzo's strategy appears to be their kind of honest and simple communications, um, particularly with some of their adverts, currently um, talking about their simple ways you can transfer money, for example. Do you look at that and see how you can then alter Santander's brand strategy or do you kind of stick to your guns?
2: I think you can learn things from all advertising, actually. And I think Monzo and Starling will learn things from the advertising they see from Santander or Lloyd's or HSBC. Um, it's fundamentally simpler to make ads about a business which has only got one product and one particular offering with that product. It gets much more complex when you're encumbered by tens of millions of customers. So they'll have that problem in time, no doubt, if they're a success. If they're still doing the same stuff, I'll be applauding them massively. But I, I think it's good, you know, if they can help us to make better ads that are easier, more easily communicated, that customers understand more easily. Great. Good for everybody.
1: I'd like to just bring Lauren in here again on another level, which is, um, I suppose, with the Santander, you're bringing in Ant and & Dec and... Uh, making the brand a bit cooler you work with love island which is probably (laughs) one of the coolest tv brands there is if you you know judging by twitter and media getting all over it and so on what's it like working with that something so high profile with so much talent and celebrity involved
0: Well, I mean, I can't see Love Island making their own uh, bank anytime soon, but um, it's definitely interesting working with the brand globally and trying to kind of stretch that IP uh, as far as it can go with um, international versions and seeing how those international versions then roll out. Um, it's certainly an interesting job going from three years ago, it being in, in one territory, that being the UK to now in 14 um, and working on a love island every day until Christmas <laughs> makes you go slightly insane. But no, it's, it's great to see how you can kind of extend that brand further into brand partnerships um, and commercial opportunities and then how you then extend that on from just being not just a, another reality TV show to, to something a bit different and special.
1: So what's your role in terms of extending the partnership? Are you the sort of mouthpiece of the brand or is it up to each territory that takes it to do with it what they want?
0: So at ITV, I provide a kind of brand identity almost that then gets rolled out into the international territories and then they add to that um, with their own kind of localised version. But we'll always make sure that it remains reasonably consistent to the tone of voice and identity of Love Island so you've got a consistent brand around the world. Probably the most interesting one, or interesting one for me, we've just talked about the, the rise of digital banks uh, and all of this change. So why now the, you know the exciting change for you?
2: Um, Well, I've been at Santander for nearly 25 years and really, honestly, love working there. I love the people I work with. I love the brand, obviously, because I brought it to the UK and I'm really vested in it. But sometimes something comes along that stirs an emotion in you, no head involved in the decision, all heart and gut. And you see a challenge and an opportunity, and I think there's a big opportunity for uh, Camelot, the the operator of the National Lottery. My interest was pricked to to talk to them more about the job when they approached me. Uh, and also, being frank, I've turned 50 this year, and I think I've got a twitch as well, like a midlife twitch about needing to do something different. Because 25 years in one place, I mean, some of the people who work in my team are younger than 25. So I've worked in the bank longer than they've been alive.
0: <laughs> And are there any particular tasks and challenges um, that you're looking forward to or know that you'll be facing at your time at Camelot?
2: There are several. I mean, the big burning platform is the licence renewal at the, at the end of 2020, which uh, is a very, very important process. That's when businesses have to bid to win the licence for the next 10 years for, for, um, to run the, the operate the National Lottery. So Camelot operates the National Lottery under licence, um, so it doesn't own that brand It operates under licence, even though it's its 25th year anniversary this year. So it's been the operator, sole operator since the National Lottery launched in the UK. But the the business has been going through some change. Uh, It's very publicly talked about needing to be more brand-led as one of its pillars of of its strategic uh, review going forward. So that's the main brief for me coming in, to help them become more brand-led. And I think Camelot's got one of the greatest brand
1: stories in the UK that nobody knows. So you say nobody knows. It's a nationally known institution. institutions on television every weekend.
2: Yeah. Agreed. They know when the draws are. You could argue, they know, mostly which, which games of which games, but do they know that the national lottery funds, the British film Institute, the arts council, that it rebuilds school halls, playgrounds, parks, It uh, funded the rebuilding of the scenic railway roller coaster at Dreamland in Margate, for example. So if you go around and look in your local area, you'll find lots of things that have been supported by National Lottery money. And that's just some of the big things. There's lots of individuals and charities. That's the side of the story that nobody really knows.
1: That's a good list of credits you read out there. I'll ring them straight after and see if we can get a bit of sponsorship. You must have been offered all sorts of other jobs over that 25 years at at the bank. So why did this one uh, pique your interest, as you say?
2: I have um, been approached a few times. I've never been offered other jobs because I've never really followed up on them because I've not been interested because I always had more to do. I think sometimes in someone's career, you've got to understand where, where there's enough road left for you to run. So even though I've turned 50, I've got another hopefully 10 years left in my career. And I've got to think, where's my path for 10 more years? And at Santander... Amazing though it's been, I, my p- marketing path has reached the top of where I can get to. There's nowhere for me to go. So I think the prospect of 10 more years of that didn't excite me. Mm-hmm. And the business wanted me to do other things, but I wanted to stay in marketing. I'm a pure player marketeer. I like marketing a lot. It's given a lot of things to me in my life and my family, so I, I really like it as a career. And so that's why I thought I'd listen this time, because it was a lot more of a path for me at Camelot because it's a sector I've never been in I'm learning it's new people there's a big challenge ahead and you never know where that's going to lead to
1: we talked about your career there I suppose it's fair to say Lauren you're at more earlier stage of your career than, than than Keith we always try to explore a little bit about career development and tips and ideas in the podcast are there any questions or points on career development you'd like to explore with Keith
0: it's an interesting one for me because I I'm never really wanted to follow the traditional route uh, of a career. Um, and more and more so, uh, particularly with millennials, a lot of people don't actually have degrees nowadays. They, you know, they go straight into whether it be schemes or um, apprenticeships. Do you think you need a degree nowadays to be successful within marketing?
2: So I'll give, I'm going to answer this question both ways because I saw some interesting data this morning. So actually, generally, my belief is no, you don't need a degree. To be, to be successful in marketing. I don't think you need a degree to be successful in most things, actually. You need the proper training and experience and support and knowledge, but that can be gained in many ways, and going to a university isn't necessarily the only way to do that. However, I did see this morning on, I think it was on the BBC website, a report into um, the percentage of elite people in society who had, particularly Oxbridge, degrees but certainly were university educated and whilst the majority of the UK population isn't university educated the majority of people in elite roles in society have been to university so that's a a function of the reality of it unfortunately I don't think that's necessarily right but it seems to be the way it is right now it's a very big investment going to university now I'm not sure being 40 grand in debt by the time you come out is a sensible move
1: and when you have um more junior members of your team whether they've got a degree or not but um, it must be on your mind to develop them uh, move them up the ladder what do you offer them in terms of uh, career development and mentoring
2: large corporates always have plenty of training schemes where people can learn some things I I tend to find that what benefits people more particularly in the space that I can help them in in marketing is less traditional forms of uh, let's call it training so less course based stuff so, I will personally, but also my teams, offer mentoring to um, individuals. And that can form the, anything from infrequent half an hour cup of coffee conversations about things that they want to get advice on through to structured monthly sessions where we have, I particularly have got some exercises and things that we do together to help them explore what they might want to do in their career, which I learnt along the way, which people taught me and I've pieced together. And also, well, I'm a firm believer, because it, I was uh, trained this way, I take people to as many meetings or as many situations as I can so they can experience live in the room the decision-making process, the issues, the challenges people face. They don't even have to have an active role in that session. Sometimes it's it's the right thing should be for them to sit and listen and understand what's happening and soak it in, because then when they're put in that situation further down the line, it won't be the first time they're in it. So I'm a firm believer in this kind of, I guess, on the job experience, you know, just being with people, seeing it happening. They don't necessarily have to have a position of authority or leadership in that situation. The the first time round can be just watching and listening.
0: And what would you say the biggest lesson is that you've learnt within your career to date?
2: One of the biggest lessons I learned was something a lecturer of mine said at university and he said to me, The marketing is just applied common sense. And I've held that view very close to my heart ever since, because there's an awful lot of waffle, and let's call it manufactured science—not real science—behind a lot of what's written about in marketing and branding. And I think if people always go back to the principle of it being really about common sense and applying it that way, then it can keep people true to its heart.
1: But I know you're a fan of Peter Field and Liz Bonet, so then they're not in the waffle category, then in your view.
2: No, because they they actually talk in fairly plain and straightforward language about stuff. But I'm also the same. I'm like Byron Sharp's great as well, because I'd I'd advocate anybody reading Byron's books because, actually, he also explodes the myth of jargon, and boils it down to more simple language. Um, I mean, I've studied marketing, so I've read all the textbooks and I've read all the science, and I think I've learned more from those guys, the the more recent stuff I've read from those guys than I did from all this tomes of theory that I read when I was younger
1: We always end uh, at the Dog and Bone podcast with this question for both our guests so I think I'll start with you um, Lauren, (laughs) but it's um, what was your most awkward or embarrassing moment in a business situation?
0: Well, I mean I think working on a show like Love Island, you often have to reference the word sex quite a few times to to various different board members around the world. So that can often be quite um, awkward, particularly when you have to keep on repeating it. Um, but probably the most awkward one to date is nothing to do with Love Island. and actually something to do with the, the finance team who I, who I sit next to. Um, and it was Christmas season. And basically, as a joke, I decided to make a rap about the finance team of which everyone found hilarious and then this then continued into it being a bet to me to to do the rap in front of the whole team and I've not really thought it through properly there I was stood up in in front of a strong team of 50 and um, doing a, a rap about EBITDA and cash flow which is highly embarrassing and didn't even get my uh, budget increased so that's probably my most embarrassing story you today. you going to
1: give us a clip now?
0: Absolutely not
1: no. <laughs> we well, want a double <laughs> embarrassment. <laughs> Keith, twenty-five years uh, in in the game at least. You must have had a few moments where the bloods run cold. And the, uh, tell us about them.
2: Yeah, I, I think I mean, there there have been a few. One that I did um, recall was I had, I got a new boss um, some years ago whose name shall remain anonymous, <laughs> and he instructed me when he came in that that we were changing ad agencies, and going to this ad agency that he decided we were going to because his mate worked there. And I had to go down and tell them that they'd won the account, and we were working together and so I went down to see the agency. I decided on en route I was going to be straight because I'm a very straight guy, so I walked into the office and i and i I' say who it was um I went to see Russ Lidston, who's a great chap, and Russ I know he's a good friend of mine now, but then he'll laugh we you know we laugh about this now, but I went in and said right um." I have been told, Russ, that I have to work with you. I don't think your agency is very good. And I w- I'm working with you under duress because my boss has told me I have to. I'm going to be a professional, but, but just so you know. And he said, OK, that's fine. He was very professional about it as well. I went back to the office, got my head kicked in by my boss because his mate had phoned up and said, this guy's just come down here, the marketing director, and said he's going to only work into us because you forced him to, et cetera. I had a massive fallout with my boss. And actually, as it turned out, we ended up doing some great work together. And Russ and I get on very well now. And it's funny how these things work out. But I guess the thing I learned from it is it's OK to be honest and sometimes tackle these things. And I think because <laughs> I was straight with them at the start, there was no simmering kind of tension. that I wasn't boiling inside like Popeye, you know, about never saying anything. But it was a very awkward moment in the room when I said what I'd said. Because I don't think they had many clients who come in and said that to them.
1: Well, well, I too know Russ, so um, the a- agency was probably Euro RSCG. It might well have been, yes. <laughs> I managed to put two and two together. <laughs> on that note, we're going to end the podcast. So I want to say thank you very much for your comments and contributions, Keith Moore and Lauren Reynolds. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for joining us on the Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.